Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning. Uh, I'm going to invite you this morning to turn to Psalm 51 as we continue our series on prayer. Been trying to, over the course of this series, for us to claim a conversational relationship with God, uh, where we open ourselves back up to God in ways that perhaps we haven't in a very long time. What we've noticed over this series is there are a couple of things that can literally block the flow of the power in our prayer life to God. One of that is just the sin in our life. It can block it like an artery. But we've also noted that distraction can do the same thing. Uh, that our schedules are so filled up, that our minds become so preoccupied that we probably wouldn't even recognize the voice of God if he was even talking with us anymore because we just drowned it out. It's just a part of the noise anymore. And so we've been trying to reclaim over the last couple of weeks, we've been trying to reclaim having some time for solitude, literally a time for quiet so that you can listen to God again, getting that back into your life. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about something else that needs to be a part of our prayer life, and that's the practice of confession. I'll go ahead and tell you up front, it's one of my least favorite things to do in prayer. I think some of you might would be willing to say the same thing, if we're going to be honest. It requires a lot of humility, um, it, it, and it's not just the fact that we're confessing something to God, it's that sometimes after we talk with the Lord about it, we know that we have some we need to go talk to other people about it as well because maybe we've brought some harm to relationships and the Lord wants to see reconciliation there. That's part of what Psalm 51 is about. If the studies are any indication, uh, Americans are more prone in their prayer life to talk, about God, to talk to God about people that they work with that annoy them than they are to confess their own sin. <laughs> you know, and when I was looking at it, I was like, I think we've lost our way. This, does, this is a part of a practice that maybe we do need to reclaim for ourselves, but I get it, it's difficult, because who likes to talk about ways that we've dropped the ball? Um, I don't, and my guess is, is you don't either. But what that does show is that there's a part of us that naturally goes back to wanting to defend ourselves when we make a mistake. We don't like to see ourselves as wrong. And especially in a culture and a climate where the only thing that's the ultimate wrong that you can do is to tell somebody that they're doing something wrong. Like that's the line that you just simply cannot cross. Scripture tells us there's a different way and it's a better way. I'll be honest with you, there have been times where um, I have had to go uh, like to, to Wendy because I have not handled myself well as her husband. Uh, I have not treated her, as scriptures say, to treat her as the weaker vessel. And it doesn't mean that she's weak. It's just how do you handle something that is weak? You handle it delicately. And there are times where I have not done that. And moments where I've had to step back and to own that. Because you see in First Peter, you get this warning. Is, you know, how you treat your spouse literally will block the flow of the power in your prayer life. And so to know that I needed to go back to her to say, I did not treat you well. I'm going to be honest with you. That's not easy to do. Is everybody in this room going to agree with me on that? It's not easy to do. And, and I'm not saying for you to agree with me that it wasn't easy for me. <laughs> I'm saying it's not easy for you to do it either. Who wants to agree with me on that? Because there's always some reason that you have locked up in your noggin as to what justified you in treating your spouse poorly or treating a friend poorly or whatever the circumstance may be. You're right in your own eyes. Psalm 51, and I'm gonna get there here in just a little bit, but I love this proverb. 
In Proverbs 28, 13, it says, whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will receive mercy. Did you notice that there's actually two promises packed in this one verse? Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper. There's a number of reasons why that's the case. One is that wherever there's a transgression, it's not just that you've broken the relationship that you've got with the Lord, it's that you've very likely also broken a relationship that you have with somebody else. You're not gonna prosper. What are some of the ways that we don't prosper? Uh, Well, uh, how well does sin serve your marriage? Probably not very well. How well does sin serve your friendships? And the answer is probably not very well. If you go into the workplace and you find that there's a person in higher levels of leadership that has been embezzling money from the company, how well does that work for the company? And the answer is not very well. Those kinds of decisions, and I could give you more, but those kinds of decisions are exactly what it's talking about here. You don't bring prosperity when you make these kinds of decisions. You bring harm. So that's one. And notice one reaction to it would be, you saw in, in, in verse 13, whoever does what? Conceals it. That you would literally spend your mental, emotional, spiritual, all of your energy in a cover-up rather than addressing it. Now, I could probably do a survey of hands and say, how many of you have done something just like that? That your first reaction was, whatever it takes for me not to deal with the consequences of the choice that I just made, that's everything that I'm going to do. And I would bet that if I said, put your hands up, and I'm not, because I'm nice, we would all raise our hands. And that's a lot of energy, isn't it? And the other thing is, is, Well, frankly, the consequences of our choice, they're still there. It's like, we'd just like to look and pretend like they're not. That's one possible reaction. But the other you saw was confession. He who confesses and forsakes them, which is basically another way of saying, I'm owning this and I will never do that again. I'm walking a completely different way. That's forsaking it. What will you receive? At least you know when you come to God, you are going to receive mercy. It's there. That's the promise in the second part. So I told you we get to Psalm 51 and we will, but there's a little bit of a backdrop for it. It's about David, 2 Samuel 12, and I'll just talk you through it, is the story of David being caught in sin and how David reacts to sin. You may know the story, but you find him as a king, his troops are out at war, and David should have, frankly, been out at war. That was a part of the responsibility and the prerogative of the king was to be with his people when they were out in a time of battle. He wasn't. He was sitting back at the palace. That's strike number one. And the way that it describes it is, as he goes out onto the top of his palace and he looks down and there's this lady out there. Her name is Bathsheba. And Bathsheba is bathing and he sees her bathing. Now, just so you know, this wasn't Bathsheba being irresponsible with her bathing. They didn't have indoor plumbing back then, gang. Just didn't work like that. Usually you'd have to do something like go to something like the pools of Siloam, something like that. You would have to bathe yourself. And so she wasn't trying to do anything. She wasn't trying to showcase herself. She was literally trying to get clean. David sees her. When he sees her, he's like, that is a good looking lady. And so what he does is he sends some of his people out to go and retrieve her and to bring her to him. And the way that scripture describes it is, is he had sexual, a sexual relationship with her. 
Now, I wanna be uh, very clear here because she was doing what she should have been doing. She was just in the flow of life. Her husband, Uriah, he's already out at battle. And in fact, he's one of David's most trusted leaders. So he's out at battle exactly where he was supposed to be. David draws her in. Now, here is where the story gets interesting because when you look at it, it says that he took her which means this wasn't something that Bathsheba was looking for. It wasn't even something that Bathsheba wanted. It was something that David did. And so if you look at the way that a lot of the Old Testament scholars would describe this story on the front end, a failure to be the proper commander in chief that he needed to be, he was in the wrong location. By the way, that was the first step in making the right decision. He wouldn't have even seen her had he been where he was supposed to be, but he wasn't. And so he sees her. Second wrong step is he sends his men, notice what he's doing. He's involving other people in a decision that he's making. He's involving other people in the sin that he is choosing. And he says, go and get her because now I'm gonna take her as if she's my own. And he felt perfectly justified in this because why? He is the king. He has some prerogatives here, or at least that's what he believes about himself. That's not his best moment. Would you agree with me there? This is not his best moment. And I hope that what you're seeing is you're seeing it on a number of levels. Here's the catch. It's about a year after the affair with Bathsheba, and that's using the word affair very generously because I think he forced himself on her. And then this guy named Nathan. You might wanna call him David's pastor. He shows up. Now imagine being Nathan uh, because you could do a couple of things here. You could be like, I'm gonna be quiet. That's a possibility. Here's another possibility. I'm gonna say something. And to his credit, this guy chose to say something. He meets with David to talk about some things that are on his mind. And we have to remember that at this point, the relationship with Bathsheba, it's really only known to a few people. It's known to David, it's known to Bathsheba, it's known to the guards that he sent out to get her. And this is what Nathan says in 2 Samuel 12, one to four. He's like, hey, I need to talk to you here, guy, David. There were two men in a certain city, one rich, the other is poor. The rich man had very large flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one small ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised her and she grew up with him and his children. From his meager food she would eat and from his cup she would drink and in his arms she would sleep. She was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man But the rich man could not bring himself to take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for his guest. Now, stop there for a second because you see what Nathan's doing, right? This is really one of the best setups that you're gonna see in all of scripture, except for one thing, David didn't see it coming. He thinks that he's basically adjudicating a case that Nathan is bringing to him. Like, what do you want done? King, what do you want done? And David's like, well, I'll tell you what I want done. And you see it in verses five and six. As the Lord lives, he sounds very holy so far, doesn't he? He sounds good. As the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Because he has done a thing and shown no pity, he must pay four lambs for that lamb. And Nathan goes, you're the guy. Oh, man. Because here's the problem for David, he's got no out. He just put the judgment on himself, didn't he? Nathan got him. 
If David takes his own words seriously, by the way, he should probably call his executioners and have himself killed. He didn't do that. He showed himself some mercy. Something that at least a moment ago was something that he wasn't really fired up about showing somebody else, right? Whoever this guy is that's taking lambs from people. That guy's got to die. David's like, well, I don't know about the death penalty right now. There's probably another way. Here's the key though. And you see this in, in verse 13, especially of Psalm 51. When later, because this takes some time and they base this on basically the birth of the child on the timing, he says, I've sinned against the Lord. Do you see a little bit of a shift in David's attitude about what he had done? Do you see it yet? It took him a little bit of time, but David ultimately got there. And I wanna point this out. There are different responses that we can make to our own mistakes. And I'm gonna give you a few, but I'm only gonna suggest that you take one. Are y'all with me this morning? Feel free to take some notes. Here's one, is you can hide it. That's what Proverbs 28, 13 was saying. You can make every effort that you want to conceal it. It's a lot of effort and it's still gonna be there, but you can try. Adam and Eve, when they sinned, what did they do? They hid from God. What do we do often when we sin? We hide from the one that we've offended. We would be more willing to walk away from a relationship than to go in humility to say that what I did was wrong and I hope that you can forgive me. That's one possibility. Here's a second possibility. We can justify it. I'll, be, I'll do a little bit more on that here in just a second, but we can give every reason that we have as to why we made the choice that we made. Here's a third possibility for you. You can pass the buck to someone else. It's their fault. Your choice was their fault. I'll give you an example in Exodus 32. I love this. While Moses is with God receiving the 10 commandments, he's up on the mountain. Aaron instructs the people to give their gold and silver and he builds a golden calf. You remember this? When confronted by God through Moses, he says, don't be angry, my Lord, Aaron says. You know how prone these people are to evil. I love his answer, <laughs> right? Give me your gold and silver and I'll start, I'll get the fire going over here. Right, And then he gets called down for it because, well, he's responsible. He's like, well, you know how prone to evil these people are. What an answer. But frankly, we do the same thing, don't we? We do the same thing. Because they said to me, he goes on, make us gods who will go before us. And as for this guy, Moses, who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. And they didn't, he'd been gone for 40 days. So I told them, whoever has any gold and jewelry, take it off. And they gave me the gold. I threw it in the fire and bang, out pops this calf. Man, not his best moment, right? That is weak cheese. But give him credit, he tried. What is he doing? My choice, my choice is your fault. That's a third possibility that we can have. Here's a fourth possibility for you this morning. You can own it and you can repent. And this is what David ultimately chooses. It's why, it's why Psalm 51 says what it does. Notice verse one, he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love and your abundant mercy. That's how he comes to him. There was no other way to come to him. Just have mercy on me. Did you notice here that there's no appeal to the good things that he's done? Did you catch that? And the reason is, is because, well, that's irrelevant. Did you notice that there's no appeal to make it not look so bad? He didn't try. He put literally all of his spiritual energy in one place, and that was in the mercy of God. And here's why he did it, because you see it in verse three. He says, because I know my transgression and my sin is before me. It's like David is seeing it for the first time and it's crushing him. Uh, it's crushing him. He didn't pass the buck. Here's what he could have done. He could have said, you know, if my wife was more sensitive to my needs then I wouldn't have done something like this. He could have tried something like that. He didn't. 
He didn't try to prove why what he did isn't all that bad. For example, he could have, you know, slide of hand, look over here, but don't pay attention to what's over here. He could have done this. I've brought great wealth to these people, and he had. I've united the 12 tribes of Israel, and he had. I've conquered Jerusalem, and he had. I brought the ark back to Jerusalem, and he had. I've defeated the Philistines, they're bad people. I've defeated the Philistines, he had. So, you know, you're not really painting the whole picture here about me when you just kind of dial in on this one moment that I had. He never went there, ever. He said, I'm seeing what I did, and it's killing me. It's killing me. He owned it. He didn't even dodge the issue. Here's what he could have done to Nathan. Uh, Nathan, do you know who I am? I could have you killed, or if you're in East Texas, kilt. I could have you kilt right now. And you know what? He could. David didn't do any of that. He said, I'm gonna own this for what it is. I hurt her. He literally has Uriah killed. And so in a moment of clarity, he points out, and you see this in verse five. He says, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now that's a really tricky verse to unpack because there's more than one way of understanding it. Here's some possibilities for you. Here's the first. One possibility is based on a Jewish understanding of the reading of Psalm 69. Because according to historical writings, they would say David's father and brothers thought that David's mother, Nisbeth, had committed adultery and had borne him out of wedlock. They get this from Psalm 69, eight. I am a foreigner, which also translates I'm illegitimate to my own family. Like they're the legitimate sons and daughters and I'm not. I'm a stranger to my mother's own children, the verse says. That's a possible way of understanding it. Here's another uh, way of understanding I was brought forth in sin is it's our natural bent to sin. That's a possibility. One pastor, I love what he said. He goes, you know, nobody gets up at 5 a.m. and their five-year-old has tidied up the living room, is sitting there reading their Bible and says when you walk in, I just need to surrender more of my life to the Lord today. Nobody has had that experience with the five-year-old. And why is that? Is because the second understanding of this would be is, is because it's our natural bent towards sin, not towards spiritual things. That might be a way of understanding. Here's a third possibility. Is the natural bent, is it speaking to the world all around you? It would be something like this. I was trying to think of an example that might make it click. But it would be like saying, I was born in an English-speaking family, which I was. But clearly, I didn't know the English when I was born. But since it was all around me, I was immersed in it. And that was everything that I learned. Everything about the broken world around me sent me basically to see that. There are possibilities here on what this means. But did you catch how David responded? This one is on who? It's on me. This is on me. And so he says in verse four, against you and you alone have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. I've had to think about that because why say that? Seems like he sinned against Bathsheba. Seems like he sinned against Uriah because, you know, murder, that's not good. And he had him murdered. It was a hit job. And, And here's something I think that we need to remember. Real repentance sees that even though our mistakes do hurt other people, ultimately the mistake is against God. 
And that's what I think he's trying to say. Ultimately, it's against God because God is our greatest loyalty. Let me give you some examples that might make it click. Joseph was being tempted to commit adultery with Potiphar's wife and in resisting her, notice what he said. He said, my master has withheld nothing from me except for you because you are his wife. And then he says, how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? He didn't first say against you. How could I sin against God? Isn't that interesting? It's interesting that Joseph didn't say that his sin was against Potiphar even. This isn't to say that Potiphar would be unaffected because he would be. But Joseph's greater loyalty was to God and his law. It was God that he didn't want to offend ultimately. Here's another way of getting it. When someone commits a crime, and let me just encourage you this morning to not, right? But when someone commits a crime, the person who was harmed by the crime is not the one who punishes the criminal. You ever thought about that? The one that is harmed by the crime is not the one that punishes the criminal. Only the state can legally mete out the punishment. It's the law that judges a person as guilty or innocent, not the victim. It's the law that was violated. Regardless of the, wor- the worthiness or the innocence of the victim, all crimes are ultimately committed against an established law. And so if you rob, we're, again, I'm not encouraging it, but if you rob your neighbor's house, you have obviously wronged your neighbor, but it's not him who's going to hold you accountable. It's the higher law that you've violated. The state is the one that bears the responsibility to, con- to convict and to punish. And I think that is what David is trying to get at in the 51st Psalm. Is it clicking yet? It's why I said it. So although affected by your crime, we would defer it to the state. Notice what David does. I have to start where it all starts, and it's with him. I gotta start there. As I was looking back at this and I was seeing David, he's having this deep emotional reaction. Like it's really hitting him what he's done. And it made me wonder this week, when is the last time that I have grieved over sin in my life like that? Like where it just hit me. And it just broke me down to see it for what it really is and to go back to God like that. But I love verse six in Psalm 51 because David says, surely you desire integrity in the inner self and you teach me wisdom deep within. That's the heart. See, what we do when it comes to mistakes is we focus on the act, but God focuses on the heart that produces the act. The heart is the real self, and until we renovate the heart, nothing else is actually going to change. But I love what David says in verse seven. He says, but there is healing to be found. And he's talking primarily about himself. There's healing to be found here. Purge me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, I will be whiter than snow. Do what only you can do. Notice with hyssop, he brings that up. That was what they used to spread uh, blood on the doorposts during the Passover. It signified that that his marked people were pure. They were not subject to judgment anymore. It was what God used to cleanse a leper. It cleanses. He says, so purge me with hyssop. And then he says this in verses 10 through 12. He says, create in me a clean heart. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. I'm walking away, but I'm asking you to be nearby in spite of me. Don't walk away from me. Restore the joy of your salvation because sin made me lose it. I mean, feel it anymore. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. And then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners to return to you. Notice what he says right off the bat, create in me. It's the exact same word that's used in Genesis when God created the earth. 
It's, in other words, it's I'm asking you to do something completely new. And I'm asking you to do it in me. I, I, I wanna remind you of something this morning because it's important. Jesus died for more than just to forgive you. He intends to write a whole new story and sends place for you. This is, this is what David is trying to tell you. He died for more than just forgiving you. He died so that he can write a new story in sin's place for you. The psalm doesn't end just with forgiveness. Did you catch it? It ends with newness. God has done something brand new. Something that we need to learn from David is that means that we take our past failures and we use it for future ministry. That's what we do. Uh, when we hand it over as an act of confession, it's a part of our story, but it can be the kind of thing as we share it that breaks the stronghold in somebody else's life when they're doing the exact same thing that you were and they see there's something more beyond it. Forgiveness is real for it and newness is something that they can claim for themselves. It becomes a part of your story, using past failure for future ministry. And as David reminds us in verse 17, he says, because this is what God really wants from us. He says, the sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. A hurt heart. And he says, you will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. You won't despise that. So something maybe to be reclaimed in our Christian life, maybe to be reclaimed as we're talking with God, is to follow the example of David who went before us and to own it so that you can move through it and past it and that God can do something new as he creates a new heart in you and a willingness to follow him that previously maybe you've blocked off. I get it, it requires humility. But here's the catch. It's the only thing that restores. There is nothing else that will do it. And that's why we're here. Um, I mean, if you're a guest, I'm glad that you're here, but the reason that we come here every week is the way I look at it is that it's like a weekly meeting of AA. Except alcohol might not be your problem. It's that every week there's more and more of sin that's gotta be purged from us and from people that gave their life to Jesus, we know that about ourselves. That's why we keep coming back is because we need it more and more and more and more. As we're made over into the image of Jesus, there's more and more of us that just has to die off that isn't fit for him. And we ask him as we come into this place, show me so that I can move beyond it. And in his grace, if you see, you will, you will. And that's why we, we, we celebrate the beauty of the gospel is that though we were yet dead in the trespasses of sin, Christ died for us. I still think about that and I go, my gosh, why would you die for somebody like me? Why would you die for somebody like me? And the answer is because the wages of sin, your sin is death. That's what you brought into this space. But I'm gonna bring something new. I'm gonna bring life out of death. And that's what you take when you take Jesus. He says he's the way, it's a whole new way of life. A new heart, that's what's given to you and a promise of a future glory when you die. He says all of that is what I'm offering you today. We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.